0: So welcome everybody to this All Saints Day lesson. Uh, who was able to go? We all able to go to mass today. Yeah, good. Beautiful mass. A lot of people at five thirty. So appropriate that we are on this day. We celebrate holiness and all of the saints in heaven. That we focus on the central tenet of our faith, our belief in God, who is one God and three persons, the Trinity. You know, I think when you think about theology and religious talk, probably the most overused word that we, especially as Christians, use is God. Oh, I spoke to God. I prayed to God. God told me this. And there's nothing wrong with that, but just simply using the word God sort of promotes this idea of this nebulous, impersonal deity. But that's not what we believe in as Christians. We listened to last week and the week before, if the Son of God in the Incarnation truly became man, then we don't believe in some distant, impersonal deity. We believe in a deity, a God who is personal, who's very, very interested in what goes on in the world and our lives. And so we, in understanding Christ, now pass, would you want me close the door there? to the central part of everything that he taught. Yeah, Jesus taught us about love. Jesus taught us about how to treat others. But Christ came to reveal to us his Father, his own nature, and the reality of the Holy Spirit. We as Christians call the Trinity, or the Triune God, that something we couldn't have figured out by ourselves came to to reveal, remember the Logos, speaking to us to tell us about the very nature of God. How could he know this? Because he is God. It's something that he experiences. And then we forget that Jesus is not just telling us about something he learned in a textbook or he heard somewhere, but Jesus is communicating to us from his very experience as the Son of God. This teaching on the Trinity, what we call this dogma, or belief, is the central teaching to all of Christianity. in a real sense, we're going to kind of see, and hopefully over the course of the year, that we can tie back everything we do, everything we believe, back to the Trinity. So if you look at the incarnation, it is the Father who sends the Son, and by the Holy Spirit descending upon Our Lady, that he takes flesh, the Trinity is involved there. When you look at the cross, the Son offers his life to the Father, the Father pours the Spirit down, and the Trinity raises up Jesus from the grave. We can see signs of the Trinity everywhere, but it's got to be revealed to us by Jesus this deep truth about who God is. And so what I want to do today is, again, when we were in seminary, we took a whole semester on the triune God. There are plenty of textbooks that you can get that talk about the Trinity and how we can understand it. And if you thought that our lesson last week on the two natures and the one person could get confusing, believe me, teachings on the Trinity, if we really get into the theology of it, can get to be very, very confusing. What I want to do today is try to simplify it as much as possible, and really, towards the end at least, help us to understand not just the Trinity is something theoretical, but the Trinity is something real, practical, in the world today. So we can understand the Trinity existing in heaven, and that's the Trinity, and it's it's, it's it's perfection, but also we can look at the Trinity acting in the world, and that's what we're going to try to achieve uh, both of those today. So the first thing is this, this idea that God is one God in three separate persons. We talked about person last week, we're going to look at it again a little bit more this week, is something I said that Jesus came to talk tell us about. revealed the nature of God to us. And so in the Old Testament, we don't, the Jews don't believe in the Trinity. They don't know anything about the Trinity. Remember we talked about how they would have started off as polytheists, believing uh, like the pagans as in multiple gods. God reveals himself to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Moses as he continues to reveal himself. We come to understand now, there are not three gods. There is only one God, and that God is Yahweh. But since we have Christ, we can kind of look back in the Old Testament and see how, though, although there wasn't a di- direct revelation of the Trinity, we can see little hints. One of the first one is in the Old Testament, Genesis. Right before, in Genesis 1, before God decides to create man, he said, Let us create man in our image. Now, that probably was sort of the royal we, but some of the church fathers took that as that very, very early revelation, even though it wasn't delivered or direct, a hint of the reality of the Trinitarian God. Let us create man in our image. We're going to talk about what it means uh, to be created in the image of a Trinitarian God. In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis chapter 19, Sodom and Gomorrah are doing all these kind of gross things, and what happens? That uh, Lot receives, or Abraham and Lot receives the three angels. Those three angels, as we're going to see in the next part, uh, kind of are a foreshadowing of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're not the Trinity itself, but the three persons are a foreshadowing. And in the Old Testament, you can see plenty of references to the Spirit of God, to the Son of God, to wisdom, another word that is used to describe Christ or the Holy Spirit. So you have hints in the Old Testament, but it's fully revealed in the New Testament in Jesus. John, the very very beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word or the Word was God. How more sort of explicit can you be? We know that Jesus is the Logos, the Son of God made man, and he was there at the beginning from all time. He wasn't created, and he was God. He was equal, the same substance. Jesus, on a number of different occasions, refers to his Father, (laughs) refers to God, but in John chapter 10, verse 33, the Father and I are one, They're one. Now, what does that mean, Are they the same person? No, as we're going to see, that has to be fleshed out. They're separate persons, but the Father and I are one. In a number of different occasions, particularly in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as I am. What does I am mean? In the Old Testament, that's Yahweh. I am. I am who am. And so Jesus, by referring to that, again, most of us don't know that, when we see Jesus say, I am the bread of life, or I am this, or I am that, he's basically saying, I'm Yahweh, or I'm equal to Yahweh. Of course, the Son of God is not Yahweh technically, but, of course, he is equal to him. We have to flesh that out. St. Paul tells in the Colossians that Christ is the image or the icon of the Father. When we see Jesus, Jesus says it himself, when you, how, show us the Father when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ in his humanity, in his male body, reveals the fatherhood of God. On numerous occasions, of course, Jesus speaks of the Spirit, the Spirit that will come when he ascends in heaven that will lead him to all truth. And as we saw last time, Jesus was, was killed for making himself equal to God. And uh, the power of the Trinity on the Transfiguration, the Mount of the Transfiguration, uh, where you have this first sort of full revelation of the voice of the Father, the glorified Son, Uh, sorry, and then the the, the power of the Spirit in Christ's body, but that was actually first in baptism, so I should be saying the baptism, not the Transfiguration, sorry. Didn't have a full dinner tonight, my brain's not working. (laughs) Now, so you read this in Scripture, and, you, and the Apostles hear this from Jesus. Remember, it's so the oral tradition first. They hear from Jesus. It's passed on. It's in Scripture. But if you read the Bible, this idea of the word Trinity actually is not even contained in the Bible. Trinity simply means three. It's a word that we came up with. You're not going to fully understand it. What does it mean that Jesus and the Father are one? Who is the Holy Spirit? We, we realize that this is a great mystery. This is the greatest of all mysteries. And as I tried to explain last week, with the Christ uh, and his incarnation, I can give you all the terms and explanations that you want, but the reality is, we're not gonna be able to fully understand everything. The same thing goes with the Trinity, probably even more thoroughly than with the incarnation. There's a story of, uh, that, that's told of St. Augustine, that St. Augustine is walking down the beach and he's meditating on the Trinity, trying to understand it. And he sees this little boy going and and, and taking a bucket and scooping water and trying to put it into a hole. And Augustine says, what are you trying to do? Uh, And he says, well, I'm trying to put this ocean into this hole. And Augustine says, there's no way you're going to do it. There's no way you're going to be able to fill all the ocean in that hole. It's impossible. And the little boy looks at him and says, Is the same way you're not going to be able to put the mystery of the Trinity, the infinite God, into your brain or into your mind. That doesn't mean that we don't try to meditate or understand the mystery, but we are only going to be able to describe and understand a very small part of it. And so all of these words of person and Trinity and substance, homoousion, prosopon, hypostasis, stuff we mentioned last week, these were all the words that came as the early church fathers duked it out, not only about trying to understand who Jesus was, both God and man, but how can we understand and explain the Trinity. There was these various heresies that were popping up, and so the church would convene with the bishops in order to try to clarify and make sense of the teaching. They had to use philosophy to understand it. We talked a little bit about that, about the importance of philosophy, the importance of human reason. The truth is, we can spend a whole year trying to understand the Trinity. We're only going to get the tip of the iceberg. Christ has revealed the Trinity to us. He is God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that it is a great mystery for us to pray about, to contemplate, and to study. So I, I think I may almost have enough for everybody. I don't want to pass out this little sheet. You'll pass them around or if you're willing to share with someone just in case. Uh, we don't have enough for everybody. If you, you know, get your your Baltimore Catechism your basic um, lessons on the Trinity, you are going to see something like this, some kind of fancy diagram. There are different ones that look different, and this tries to sum up in sort of artistic form, the nature and reality of God, who is a trinity trinity of persons. And so we use the word nature to talk about that divine nature, being God, and all the qualities that are connected with God. And we'll look at it. So you see in the center of this diagram, You see the little bright shining thing that says God. And the connectors to that triangle, Father, Son, and Spirit. So God is the Father. God is the Son. God is the Holy Spirit. All of them share in that one divine nature. So no matter when we talk about the qualities of God or what it means to be divine, all of those qualities can be used to describe Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if you look at God, that's the nature. But if you notice the little circle going around, Son is not Father, Father is not Son, Spirit is not Son. This is showing that even though they're all God, Father, Son, and Spirit are separate persons. Just like we all share one human nature, everyone in this room is a human, unless we have some androids, and here are some aliens, which we don't, we're all individual persons, individual substances of a rational nature, individual posi- deposits, as it were, of human nature. And so just as Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all separate persons, but they all share that same nature. So this diagram right here, which seems so simple and elementary, took centuries to be able to hammer out. Not just the diagram itself, they understood the basics of Trinitarian theology, but to be able to understand the mystery of the Trinity. And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin by looking at this ultimate mystery to kind of rehash some of the stuff we've already talked about. God in his nature. What divinity means, that that stuff that all the persons of the Trinity share. And so, as you talked about earlier in the year, we don't need revelation to understand that there is a God and to be able to sort of discern some of the qualities of God. We can discern God through creation. We've already seen it. You don't need revelation of God. We can look at creation and decide there must be, what was the argument? There must be some divine being sustaining creation in this present moment. But we can also look at the Big Bang in science to realize something must have begun and brought creation into being. We can know a lot about God. We can never fully know everything about God. But we can understand there was a creator. And through further theological studies and praying, we can understand that he is omnipotent. He can do all things. He's all-powerful. He's the fullness of being. He's not lacking anything. He's truth. He's beauty. He's goodness. He's the creator. All things are dependent upon him. He's all-wise. We can go down the list. But these all describe God in his nature. These are all things, y'all, that we looked at before. So if you want to revisit some of the qualities of God and and, and what it means to be God, you can of course, go to the Catechism, and you can go back to that previous lesson. But what we want to do today, if we're going to really explore the Trinity, we don't want to necessarily look at God and His nature, or these qualities that all three persons of the Trinity share, but we want to try to understand God and His relations the Father, Son, and Spirit, all God, but understood in relation or relationship to each other. And so if you study Trinitarian theology, you'll learn that in order to really say, hey, there are three persons of the, of the Trinity, there's got to be relationships this idea of relation or relationship is going to become really crucial uh, a little bit later on, Um, not only in today's lesson, but in uh, moral theology. Relation or relationships. It is relationships that establish the persons of the Trinity, the Father to the Son to the Spirit. Now what is a person? We've talked about this a little bit before. Person, or at least in the English word here, the, 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 the title or the fancy theological philosophical term is an individual substance of a rational nature. Now again, that's philosophical. I'm sure we can come up with some other ideas of persons. But so there's an individuality. It has a nature, it's rational, it's reasonable. And so these three divine persons are all individual substances, deposits of a divine nature with their own personalities, their own intellects, even though they share the one divine intellect, they share the one divine will, they're all individual persons. All individual persons of a rational nature. And so Christ has come to reveal to us they're not four persons in God, five persons in God, but there's only there are three: Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, why just three? We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. <clears throat> but in order to understand them, then again, it was interesting as Jesus didn't come say God number one, God number two, God number three. He didn't say that. He revealed Father, not Mother. Son, and the Holy Spirit. All defined by their relationships. The Son is generated from all eternity by the Father. Just like in in reality, if you are a son, a man, you are defined by your relationship (laughs) to your Father. The same thing with the daughter. And the Holy Spirit will see is defined by his relationship to the Father and the Son. So God the Father. Why do we call him Father? Why do we call God Father? Because again, the Zeus was called Father. There are a number of different pagan religions that called their God Father. But what happened was, it was from their own experience of fatherhood, and often fathers may not have been responsible, they may have been sort of angry or cantankerous. But they took humans with their own experience of father and said, This is what God is like. But this is the exact opposite. This is fatherhood that exists in heaven that is coming down to help define what human fatherhood ought to be like. But he is called father from all eternity because he generates the Son. Now, when you get into theology, there's all kinds of specific words. When you talk about the Son is begotten from all eternity, He is generated. But this is the mystery. that He begin to exist at a certain point in time? No. He, just like the Father, is God and has existed for all eternity. But the Father is the one, as at beginning principle, as it were, of the Trinity. The Father is the one who generates the Son. But he's called Father because of that, but also because he is the Creator and ruler of the universe. He is the Father of all life. We can also now call him God, our Father, as we'll talk about, because of the Trinitarian baptism. Jesus said, go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And through that, we become adopted sons and daughters of God through grace. We'll look at that at baptism. The Father, though, is not generated, nor, as we'll see, spirated or brought forth. He is unbegotten. So even though that he doesn't come from anywhere, and in a certain sense, the Son doesn't come from anywhere either even though he was generated by the Father from all eternity. It's not like he didn't exist and did exist. But the Son is generated from the Father for all eternity. And with the Son, they both we call spirate, or breathe forth the Holy Spirit. And so what happens is, God, the Father, is there. Christ uses this human terminology of human fatherhood to help us understand the nature of divine fatherhood. Now, is God the Father the same type of father as we are on earth? No, he doesn't have a body. But fatherhood, our earthly fatherhood, finds its origin in God the Father. So does motherhood, but he, Jesus doesn't call God his father, his mother, but he calls him his father. And so we can use that analogy. The father brings forth the son, and the son is very similar to the father. But we've got to understand, though, as much as we use this term, or this is the term Christ used to reveal God, he is not a sexed being. He's not in the same way we are, male or female. He is Father. He doesn't have a body. But he is that generating principle, the one that generates, that brings forth life, that generates the Son from all eternity and he cannot be mother. He can maybe have motherly characteristics, just like a father can have motherly characteristics, but it doesn't make your dad your mom. And so we really can't call God our mother. Why? Because Jesus revealed him as father, not only in his words, but in his very body. In his male body, he images, he's the icon of God the Father. And so while we can appreciate motherhood, we can't take Jesus' word, something as essential as this, and turn it around. So that's God the Father. He is the, the origin. He is the one who is unbegotten. He is the one we are all called to worship with the Son and the Spirit. So from all eternity, though, the Father generates the second person of the Trinity. And so that's that relationship there. So we move to the Son, the Son is generated from all eternity from the Father. Again, we can also call the Son the Word who's spoken from the Father from all eternity. He's the Word spoken from all eternity that comes from, that is generated from the, the mouth of the Father. Now also because He's God, you can in certain sense, say He allows Himself to be generated. It's not forced upon Him. Remember, the Father and the Son share that same divine will, and he he allows himself to be brought forth, to be generated from all eternity. And he is equal to, of the same substance, of the same nature as the Father. He's not a little bit less than God. That was one of the the big issues. The Son was somehow in the early church not fully God. He was God, maybe 99 or 98% God. And the church is not, that's not it at all. Being called the Son of God means that he shares the same substance. When we, when I say I'm the Son of my Father, I share the same substance as my Father, but I'm not the same person. In the same way, Jesus, the Son of God is a separate person but shares that same substance. And because that divine nature can't be split, can't be broken, you can't be a little bit less than God, he has to be equal to Him from all eternity. And so as we saw last week, when the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, decides, with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, to become man. And so you have that one divine person with the divine nature, assuming a human nature. And his mission into the world, what we call, y'all don't need to really know this, but you call the Trinity up in heaven in itself the imminent Trinity. And you call the Trinity work in the world the economic Trinity. And so the economic Trinity in the world, the Son's mission has come to redeem. As we'll see, the Spirit's mission sent into the world is to sanctify. Does the the Father have a mission? Is the Father sent? Is the Father sent? No, he's not. He is the one who sins. So even though we can say they're all equal, they're all in relationship to each other, only two have a mission. The Son to redeem, the Spirit to sanctify. The Father is the one who sends them on their mission. In a certain sense, you could say the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son together, That gets into some deeper theological stuff. And so Christ, Jesus, in his masculinity, reveals the Father. I preached on this a few weeks ago, and I think it's so crucial. The Son's decision, or let's say the Trinity's decision for the Son to become incarnate in a male body was not an arbitrary decision. And have the three persons of the Trinity sitting in heaven, you know, shooting dice and saying, "Hey, if we roll a seven, you know, you're going to become a man, and if it rolls a six, you're going to become a woman." It's not how it worked. These things are not arbitrary. So, what is the significance that the Son of God takes on a male body? Well, it shows us, as we saw before, that the body is important because of the incarnation. The human body enters theology through the front door, as John Paul II said. But it also shows that Christ's male body had a revelatory significance. There to reveal the generative power of the father. Not the mother, but the father. And so this is, this is why we got to understand, and we, we're going to look at this a little bit more in the priesthood, why the male body and the female body, what they signify, <coughs> and that Christ's male body, the incarnation, was not sort of an arbitrary decision. And of course, after it goes into heaven, the Son of God is back in heaven. He's there, but now he has a body, a human nature along with the divine nature. and so that human nature is brought into the life and the love of the Trinity. And then finally, when it comes to persons, the Holy Spirit, or as sometimes they call him the Holy Ghost, Now, you see the Spirit in the Old Testament, even though you don't know that He's divine, the Spirit breathing over the waters. The Spirit sometimes spoken of as wisdom in the Old Testament. He's veiled, but He's acting in the New Testament. The Spirit leads Christ out into the desert. The dove descends upon Christ at baptism. Christ speaks about the Spirit He will send when He leaves. When does the Spirit really descend? It descends in the tongues of fire on Pentecost and constantly guiding the early church. And so, just like the Father and the Son, the Spirit is eternal. But the word that we use to talk about where the Spirit comes from is not generated, but spirated. 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 To respirate means to breathe. Spirare means to breathe in Latin. And so the spirit is breathed forth from the Father and the Son. This was the big thing in the early church. Where does the spirit come from? Does the spirit, is he only breathed forth from the Father, or is he breathed forth from the Father and the Son? Well, if you remember the creed that you would have said at Mass, it is the Father and the Son who spirate, who breathe forth. The Spirit comes from both of them. But the truth is, they, the Spirit is of the same nature, equal substance as the Father and the Spirit. Now we can look in the Catechism and realize that there are different names for the Holy Spirit called fruit, the fruit of the love of the Father and the Son, the gift shared, the bond that unites, the love shared. But what I think is so important for us to understand, when we think of the Spirit, when it comes to the person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit's the worst for us to really grasp. So if I'm trying to pray and think of God the Father, well, even though it's not necessarily proper, he doesn't have a body, I can think of this father figure with a beard, sitting on a throne, Jesus, of course, we know what Christ looked like. We talked about that last time with the Trat of Turin, or was it the time before? And the Holy Spirit. Oh, he's a bird. (laughs) You know how they, when when you do adoration, if you've ever been in adoration, there's this divine praises that we say, and we have all these different titles. We praise God. And one of them is the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, the one who sort uh, sort of speaks forth. We used to say, the Holy Spirit's a parakeet. <laughs> no. He's not fire, he's not wind. He's a person. So this is a, so. so for, I think a lot of the times for Catholics and for Christians, it's hard to get our mind around the, the, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's like the force in Star Wars. No. The Holy Spirit is a person. When we receive the gift of the Spirit, we're receiving a person. We are receiving God. And so it's the Holy Spirit that acts as that bond that connects the Father and the Son and shares in that same <clears throat> divine nature. Does that make sense? So three persons, one nature. It is a mystery. I've given you sort of the, the real like, basic substance of this. But I'm gonna do one last aspect and then we're gonna take a break and sort of try to talk very briefly about how we can better understand and explain uh, the Trinity in our own lives. We talked about persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, their names are revealed to us by Christ, but it's the relationship that they share with each other that defines them as persons. Persons. Not human persons, but divine persons. But it is, the Trinity is the origin of all things on earth and in creation. But if we're going to talk about the relations of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, you make a triangle. What is at the heart of those relationships? What is yeah. love? So, this is not some transactional relationship. Let's say that I go to Margaret and I want to buy her car and I give her $10,000. We have a relationship, but it's transactional. We're talking about relationships for all eternity of divine persons based in love, but also because love is when it's true nature, based in the gift of self. From all eternity, the Father generates the Son. And the Son receives that gift of life, but gives himself back to the Father. And the Father and the Son, in giving themselves to each other in love, spirate and bring forth the Spirit from all eternity as the fruit of that love. And the spirit then gives himself back to the Father and the Son. So what you've got to understand, though, in the trinity, it's not like Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay, they're just sort of these static beings. From all eternity, they are acting and giving themselves to each other out of love. But when you love, love creates an energy. It creates a dynamism. And so if we're going to say the trinity is love and the origin of our human love, and we're gonna realize there's an active principle there. There's no potency. It's always active for all eternity. The truth is is John tells us that God is love. If we understand that, God is love explains the meaning or the potential for the Trinity. How is that? What you should think about that. God is love. How does that, that mean? are come to help us understand the reality that God can't just be one person, but must be more than one person, ultimately, I think. Three persons. <clears throat> so yes, Miranda, you have the answer to that? What is the answer? You can't love. Well, like you have to have something to love. Exactly. You can't love yourself. I mean, you can, but you can't give yourself to yourself. And so if for all eternity, God is love and gift, well, guess what? Did creation always exist? No. He can he, give himself to us and exist in relation with us, but we don't exist from all eternity. So if you're going to say that God is eternal and God is love, that means from all eternity there must be a beloved. And who is that Beloved. The Son, who is generated from all eternity because of God's very nature, is love. And the Son gives back, and and as we know, that love between two opens up a space for a third. And that life that comes forth from from the exchange is the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to see that, our deeper understanding of it a little bit later when we talk about the human person in the image and likeness of God. But God is love means there must be a beloved from all of eternity. And so this exchange of love, it ends up leading to that perfect union and communion. So gift of love leads to communion of persons. Three separate persons for all eternity, living in union with each other, separate, but in union. And so I'll teach you a, a word that we used to love in seminary. Perry Koresis. Anybody want to guess what that word means? You all know what this word means. Let's use our etymologies. Let's use our English language. Peri. what does that mean? Mike, I see you doing it. What does it mean? Around. Around. Give me an English word. Perimeter. Perimeter or periphery, coreasis, <coughs> true but more specific, Core, ASUS. some of you want to know that, know that word, it's a Greek word, that it is brought into to transliteration in English, what do you call the person who gives the movements to the ballet performers? choreographer, it means to dance. In the early church, we use perichorosis, it means to dance around, to dance around. So we talked about this per- pericoratic. you have know, three separate persons, but in that communion, they sort of dance around, and they sort of indwell in each other. And so just as the father is separate than the son, and the son is separate than the father, you can almost make a Venn diagram. You know the Venn diagram, three circles, and they all kind of connect in the middle. They're all separate, but they dance around. They sort of are in each other, in and out of each other. It's a great mystery, but it's that perichoradic indwelling, or the dance of the person of the Trinity. And so this is where you know theology becomes very mystical, using this type of language to describe poetic, mystical language to describe this core, uh, the core teaching of the faith and to be able to describe a little bit of its beauty. So do, do we all understand the Trinity now? We can go take a test on it. I, I know this is, is hard and it can become dry, but what I want to do is going to take a break. We're going to come back and try to show how we can better understand and teach the Trinity and sort of live it out in our lives. So let's take a 10 minute break and come back. So, what, what I want to do is start in the second half of class. Can we close the door again so we don't make noise for everybody? Or everybody doesn't make noise for us? Um, trying to find ways to better understand and grasp the central mystery. You know, so I mean, I literally gave you the, the first grade explanation of the Trinity. You're probably saying, well, Paul, I don't want to know what grade is. Um, but it's just so hard. And I promise you that moving on to the next lesson, things are going to get a little bit easier and not necessarily as abstract. When we start talking about the Trinity and incarnation, we're using all these philosophical terms that simply, uh, for an introductory level course, particularly for those who are just becoming Catholics, just too much but we're gonna get into some other stuff that I guess is a little bit more hands on and practical. So that's what I wanna sort of do today is try to help us better understand the Trinity or ways that we can explain it. But the truth is, no matter what we use, what analogy we use, they're all going to fall short. And in fact, I'm sure if you took all these analogies and picked them apart, you'd probably see different heresies in them. Now, I'm not trying to say that I'm a heretic or I want you to become a heretic, but you're going to realize that they all, what we say in theology, there's a major dissimilitude. They're more unlike they are than like what they are. And so when it comes to explaining the Trinity, What is the most famous analogy or thing that we use to explain the Trinity? Three in one. Yes, that is the tautology. Uh, But (laughs) yes, you're right. What is three in one? What what thing? Leaf clover. Oh, three leaf clover, correct. Yeah. So you all know the three leaf clover. I could draw one for you, but you know it. That is often. You'll see uh, on religious items uh, a three-leaf clover. What does the three-leaf clover mean? It is clover. It's one. It shares its cloverness, but there are three little cloves on it. I don't know. Little leaf type things. So it's separate. Is this the proper analogy? No, it's not. I mean, it's not perfect. But it can help us to better understand the three-in-one. And this goes back to what we talked about, this incarnational spirituality, that what I want to try to do is show you how, whether it be an art or architecture or relics, that the faith takes on flesh. It's something we can grasp onto. Another analogy that is often used but again, it's not perfect. and could be accused of the heresy of modalism, which I don't want you to accuse me of being a modalist. What's that? Modalism is that, that basically the persons are three different modes of being God, not three different persons. But so the analogy that could be accused of modalism, but we're not going to do that today because we know it's perfect, is water. So there is water, liquid, water, gas, water, frozen, solid. They're all water, But there are three separate ways of being in water. This would be modalism, but you can kind of understand it. They're all water, but they're all different. In the same way that the Trinity is all God, but all separate persons. Even though these water, solid, and gas are three modes of being in water, you can at least get the idea that there is some separation. I'm sure you can come up with a bunch of other analogies, but probably one of the, the most famous ways for understanding the Trinity, and there's no way I'm going to be able to get into all of it now, is the very famous icon by the Russian iconographer in the 15th century, Andrei or R-U-B-L-E-V, of the Trinity. How many of y'all have seen it? This is a very, very famous uh, icon. So it was an icon, for those who don't know. So we have, in the church, Western church, we have traditional sort of art. So you have a picture of Jesus there, Our Lady, very realistic. But in the Eastern church, Russia, Greece, the the Eastern area, this art of iconography developed. So it's not abstract, but it's not completely realistic. And it's often done on wood, and they don't call it drawing. They call it writing. And it's a prayerful experience. And it's almost like the icon, this is not drawn or painted, it's copied, becomes a window into heaven, the gold and the images. And it's something you can contemplate, and there's often a lot of symbolism in it. And so here you have the three angels we talked about that came to visit Lot and Rublev spent a lot of time praying about this, and and I have something I'll post online, a PDF, that gives a very, very detailed explanation of all this. I didn't read it all, so I won't remember it all, but basically you have these three, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, but if you notice how like the Father is all one color, but these, the, this, the two colors here, split in half in the middle one, the two human natures. The green on this one is the Holy Spirit, the life that comes with the Holy Spirit. Each of them have different rods that sort of symbolize uh, their order in the Trinity. Uh, there are all kinds of other symbolism in their feet, in the food that's being blessed. I can't get into all of it, but you could take an image like this if you really understood it, you could do a lot to not only teach the dogma of the Trinity, but you could also really pray about it and get some of the deeper mystery. The yeah. Adoration Chapel in Sicilia? It has I one mean, like this. I, it, it has a really great form. It's, it, it, it's just a pretty one nice to sit in front it's, it's a copy here. They have different copies, of different images. So, what I'll do is I'll. So look, Steph, You get you get the little explanation of this. The so next time you go to Cecilia to pray, uh, you'll be able to better understand it. And you can buy these online. It's very easy. A lot of so this idea of art and of beauty, the different icons and the different symbols that we have in them. This is a particularly rich one and a very ancient one that can teach us the deeper truths of the faith. Um, <clears throat> I think I mentioned it, that I lived in Rome for five years. And I remember going to Rome and asking my priest, who was then Monsignor Provo, you know, when I'm in Rome, what what should I do? What should you do? He goes, go visit the churches. Go look at the art, Get to know the city. Because you will learn more from the city about your faith than sitting in any boring class. So it's true. You go to St. Peter's and you see the art, or you travel to Shakhtar and you see the, the Gothic cathedrals and the windows, you will learn more about your faith than from any stupid textbook or for me rambling on for an hour and a half on Thursday nights. <laughs> Aaron wants to give an amen for that. <laughs> it's true. And that's the incarnational aspect of it. I mean, think of it. How many of you, like, you know, when you think of a biblical image, whether you want to or not, quite often, like a story from the Bible, an image from a stained glass from the church you grew up in or from a book you had as a kid is what immediately comes to your mind. Do any of y'all have that? Yeah. It is. It's there. And that's what they did. Churches were these structures that had theological meaning the art and the architecture, you taught people that. You could learn a lot more than simply by reading a book. And of course, back then, people didn't read and they didn't have books like we do now. So art certainly can teach us a lot. Uh, And I really want to encourage that, art and architecture. But where, though, at least for modern humanity, living in the Western world, particularly in the church today, where is the greatest Icon of the Trinity. Where do we best understand? Even though the early church they did not believe this at all, up into the even the Middle Ages they didn't believe this at all. Where do we believe today at least we can find the best image of the Trinity? Family. The family or the human person. Amen. That we, as humans, or created in the image and likeness of God. We know that. We, we talked about that uh, in the scripture passage in Genesis 1. We're going to see this a lot more later when we begin to talk about our moral life. But we, in our bodies, but also in our souls, our intellects, and our wills, are created in the image and likeness of God. What does that mean? Well, of course, it means that we have a soul, that we have a spiritual dimension. God is purely spiritual. We have an intellect and a will. God has a divine intellect and a divine will. And there are all these different ways the early church fathers sort of used to talk about the human person being in the image and likeness of God. But the one that has the most traction today goes back to the scripture whenever... God says, let us make man in our own image. Now, of course, we know that God, who is making man as an image, is a God of one God in three persons, a God of gift, of love, of communion. So it was really Pope John Paul II who brought this forth, the light, the front, that man is most in the image of God when we are living in union and communion with other persons, when we give ourselves to others, when we live in love, when we have that community. Because God is a community of three persons, when we live in community, when we give of ourselves, we are imaging God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Particularly the family or man and woman in their communion image of the Trinity. The man and woman give themselves to each other out of love, and what comes forth? The child, the fruit of that love, the bond that connects them together. Now again, of course, there's no eternity, there's no sex of the Trinity, we understand all that, but you basically get the main point. For man today, looking at love, of fruitfulness, of of gift and communion, we image the Trinity. Does that make sense to you all? And so this is a great area of contemplation. But what's also interesting is there's a bi-directionality there. So if we say, oh, we image the Trinity, Well then, we look back at the Trinity to see how we should live. So Father, Son, and Spirit giving themselves, loving each other, existing in communion, the fruitfulness of that love. If we believe that we're in the image of the Trinity, then hey, we need to be doing our best to live like the persons of the Trinity, to be witnesses to others so that they see us and come to know the love of Father, Son, and Spirit, that community of life and love that exists in the Trinity. So that means we're called to live gift of self. We're called to live in union with each other, the community of persons, and to live in love. Does that make sense? So this, again, is a great mission. We're going to get into this a lot more later on um, when we talk about the dignity of the human person. But what I want to do, though, and this is going to be something, again, we're going to revisit a little bit later on, is to talk about or sort of begin to to wrap things up while acknowledging that everything we're talking about is a mystery and that we, we can contemplate it, we can understand it. We're never going to fully grasp it. We need faith. But where is it that not through an analogy or through some theological construct, where do we believe that we as Christians from almost, let's say, a hands-on experience come to know and experience the Trinity firsthand? Marriage well, you're the image of the Trinity. You're not necessarily (coughs) experiencing it in a very direct way. But each and every baptized Christian has a very direct experience, or potential spiritual experience, connection to the Trinity. Heather, do you have anything? I I was gonna say baptism. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And this is what a teaching, a beautiful teaching of the Church that we often forget. When we talked about the idea of original sin, the humans born into the world are born not what we call in the state of grace. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what grace is later. But ultimately we said that grace is gift, gift, the gift of God's life poured into our souls. So that we believe that when we're baptized, our original sin, we say, is cleansed away. But original sin isn't like, like a, a blot on the soul. Original sin is an absence. We are born as humans as a tabernacle. You know, you go to church where the Jesus is in that gold box. We are a tabernacle. But we're born and the tabernacle is empty. But at baptism, Father, Son, and Spirit, through grace, come to dwell in our soul. So every baptized Christian living in the state of grace is a tabernacle for the indwelling trinity. This is a, a central teaching of the faith, and something that we forget about, or we don't realize, or we were never taught, or we don't really kind of understand, is that if you're living a morally upright life as a baptized Christian, the trinity that created the universe that is the almighty God dwells in your soul through grace. That We're a tabernacle. So as good as it is for us to be able to go to church, to worship, or to go to some other place, to really adore the Lord, if you're a baptized Christian, all you need to do is look into your soul. And so as big as God is, He is in the soul of every baptized Christian living in the state of grace. And so this is where prayer for the Christian really begins, what we call the interior life. I mentioned it before, and we'll talk about it at the end, that we can study theology like we study geography or math or history. But to truly study theology, the best theology is really supposed to be done on your knees. You don't study geology on your knees, or maybe you do if you're picking up rocks, but the idea of prayer, that we approach these deep mysteries, not necessarily intellect, but with our hearts. And so this idea of the Trinity living in our souls, you can sit and read the textbook all you want, but the great saints understood more about the mystery of the Trinity from spending time in prayer, turned inwards to in the interior life, coming to have that spiritual, mystical, if not experiential, experience of the Trinity dwelling in the soul, coming to know Father, Son, and Spirit, allowing the Trinity and the soul to purify and to guide and establish that relationship. One of the great saints, St. Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity, that was her whole thing. She was a Carmelite of the 19th century. Her whole thing was, I don't need to go places to pray. I've got the Trinity dwelling in my soul. And so that's that interior life, that contemplative life. So as much as it is important for us to meditate on and think about and, and read about the Trinity, the real knowledge we're going to get is from prayer and from encountering the indwelling Trinity in our souls. And so this sort of brings up, and I'll I'll wrap it up here. I I was looking for the book, and I couldn't find it. I believe it's Cardinal Ratzinger, of course, who became Pope Benedict, talked about the Trinity. He writes a fair bit about the Trinity. In one of these books, he mentions this article about this woman, theologian, who was writing about the Trinity, and said, what sort of a useless teaching it is. That the Trinity, as nice as it sounds, really has no practical use in the world. It's not really efficient. It's nice, but unlike the moral teaching or the incarnation or whatever, it's not really applicable. And and Ratzinger responds, if I remember correctly, he says, not. If we reduce knowledge to the practical, then guess what? We get rid of art. We get rid of music. We get rid of love. We get rid of all these things that don't serve a practical purpose. The theology and contemplation isn't always practical. But spending time to meditate on and sort of knowledge for knowledge's sake to grasp a mystery, even though you may not be able to apply it, is often much more valuable than learning how to fix the toilet, or build a hut, or to make wine, or whatever. Is that there is practical knowledge, but there's also knowledge that is a deeper mystical knowledge of the mind and the heart, and that's what the Trinity is. But the truth is, is it does become eminently practical if we pray, if we meditate, because we begin living ourselves as as tabernacles and see the trinity in others and show that respect for the persons. We understand what it means to live in gift and communion with other people and we come to better understand the heart of the mystery of God as we live it in our lives. And so well, a lot of what we're going to do later on when it comes to sacraments and moral theology and prayer is something that's very practical and it's important. But just because we're studying these deeper theological things that don't seem to impact our daily life, indeed, if all theology does go back to the Trinity, and it is the central element, then we can connect it to everything. And we really ought to connect it to everything. And so that's why I want to really encourage whether it be the meditation on this image, or there are there many beautiful Trinitarian prayers, is as important as it is to read and to do whatever, is to take some time to sort of work over this mystery in your mind and your heart, particularly if you are a baptized Christian, to ask to, to come to spend that time in prayer uh, and to gain a, a much more real, a much more mystical knowledge than anything you're going to learn from a textbook. And then hopefully by grounding yourself in this deep, deep reality, it's going to shed light on everything else. So next week we're going to talk about, I think it's the church and the community of saints. I think it's the church. Yeah, the community of saints. Well, guess what? The unity of the Trinity, the church is the body of Christ. We're supposed to share in that same type of unity, of gift of love, to image what's going on there. So all the things are connected. And we'll see that in the sacraments. We'll see that in the moral life, that we all come from God, the Trinity, and we're called to go back to him. And so sure everything, it all really comes back to that, and that dance, that, that union of life and love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.